Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Another uniqueness of VIX is that I've followed a lot of markets in my career and near with near certainty you can count on the fact that when more and more institutional capital flows into an instrument it becomes increasingly efficient right harder to extract alpha VIX doesn't have that characteristic so far as institutional capital flows into it it becomes either equivalently inefficient or more inefficient over time Welcome, podcast listeners, to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives. I'm your host, Jeff Malik, and we're doing a rogue game for this episode, sitting down with the CIO and founder of Certeza Asset Management, Brett Nelson, in his home state of Utah. Welcome, Brett. Great to be here. Thanks. Uh, Certeza is a quantitative trading firm managing over $80 million with multiple programs specializing in the volatility space, and specifically volatility arbitrage where they use sophisticated algorithms to trade the VIX term structure, more on that in a bit, and identify opportunities to generate absolute returns. So that's a lot to unpack, but uh, first let's start with the fun stuff. It's dumping snow here in Salt Lake today. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you enjoy this world-class Utah snow? Absolutely. I was born and raised in Utah, so uh, you know I started skiing at a young age, and it's kind of like walking here, but uh, we have... Uh, numerous world-class ski resorts within an hour and a half of the house, so I can uh, take advantage whenever I want. And you're uh, a little north of Salt Lake. Where are you at? Yeah, we're about 90 miles north of Salt Lake in a mountain in a mountain town. So, not a lot of hedge fund guys up there. <laughs> not a lot of hedge funds, hedge fund guys. Um, and so, what's your favorite mountains? Do you get down here to the big resorts, or you stay up there? Yeah, we do both. We, uh, we obviously, we have a family season pass to the local resorts up there, so we can go up for, you know, half days or, or weekends, and then we come down to Park City and Salt Lake Resorts. I'd probably say my favorite, if the snow is good, Brighton is amazing. Um, Snowbird is also great if you don't get blown off the mountain, but uh, if the snow is great, then Snow Basin up in the Ogden area that was kind of revamped for the Winter Olymp- Olympics, that's a, that's a fantastic resort. And how, how was that? Were you a part of the Winter Olympics? I attended the Winter Olympics. I didn't, I didn't participate. I wasn't, a, I wasn't a competitor, didn't participate on the staff, but I attended. Uh, what was that like for, the, for all of you, Ton, for Salt Lake? It was great. Um, it turned out really nice and was probably one of the better hosted events that I've seen in, as far as Winter Olympics. The uh, Salt Lake's downtown and just the surrounding areas is probably the best venue worldwide, I think, for that for that type of event did it leave uh you guys terribly in debt like a lot of these (laughs) other places have these big issues after right no i've actually been i've heard multiple reports that says that um, park city specifically has been one of the few places that's actually been able to monetize all the improvements and continually it it became kind of the world training training ground for 
future Olympic athletes. That's great. When Chicago was in the running for the whatever next summer one, I was a big no, hard no. It's like yeah. it, I was like, it's going to be five years of construction followed mm -hmm. by two weeks of the best times of our life, excellent, and then 50 years of debt trying to climb out from under it. So Yeah, I was actually, I lived in South Korea in the uh, the year leading up to when the World Cup was coming there, and I saw the lengths that they were going to to get the stadiums ready for the for the uh, World Cup and just the massive amount of, of debt that they had to go into. And, and I was hoping when, you know, you, you hope that when uh, events come here that you don't see the same type of debt piling up. But yeah. So let's get into that. You were living in South Korea? Yeah, I lived in South Korea for a couple of years. In Seoul or what part? No, a little south of there. I moved around, moved around a bit, but a place called Taejeon. When what what were you doing? Uh, I was actually a, a missionary for a oh, couple yeah, of years, did a service mission. Um, and so let's. Uh, you went, or I wanted to go back to the. Uh, so you love the skiing, love the winter. You like the summer even better, or what's the summers like? After? I would say now that I'm a little bit older, the summers are better. I used to love the winters more uh, when I skied just about every day, but now I would say boating. Most people don't realize about Utah, it's not just about the snow skiing. It's kind of an outdoorsman's paradise year-round. So between downhill mountain biking and, and boat sports during the summer, that kind of occupies more of my time for sure. And you're not boating on the Salt Lake? No, little lakes? definitely not. We have a lot of... We're a kind of a desert climate, so we have a lot of reservoirs, and so you can kind of pick your spot. And what's your uh, favorite water sport? I'd say probably kiteboarding um, nice. or, or wakeboarding, either way. I was back in uh, ancient times growing up in Florida, we would do wakeboarding, but it was behind a little Boston Whaler with an actual surfboard. Yeah. So there yeah. were no straps or anything. We just would somehow get up, hang onto the rope, and be sort of doing it on a surfboard. So uh, wake surfing has kind of taken over the wake world anyway. I think about 90% demographic now amongst the wake sports now is wake surfing. So. And that's when that boat's just putting up the big wake and yeah. without a rope surfing it? Uh, yeah, I mean, with the better boats, you can do it without a, without a rope. But with a, you, know, you can do it with a rope and get more aggressive if you want to. The, uh, that always looks dumb to me because the boats like in Wisconsin up at the lakes there and they're going so slow and they're uh -huh. pitched way. I'm like, it doesn't look like any fun for the people on the boat. It's it's uh, more of a social event than an actual sporting event okay. at that point. You can just sit and listen to the music and have a conversation, and, and you can actually talk to the rider while they're riding, which is different than other wake sports. I like it. Hand them a beer. Yeah. Um, and so born and raised in Utah, then went to college in Utah also. Yeah, went to college in Utah, Utah State University, uh, Huntsman School of Business. The Aggies. Yeah, the Aggies. I've, uh, I think I've owned them in a basketball pool or two over the years yeah. so that's a good bet the uh this year they're actually quite strong in basketball too so yeah they'll make it in the tourney i think they will um although you know they're not the best in the in the conference san diego state's quite good this year so oh um, that's we'll that see. same conference yeah we'll see how that plays out they hadn't lost a game right they so. hadn't until recently and then they they kind of lost an upset i think it was U, uh, unlv i think beat them um and so huntsman school of business that's mm -hmm. the former uh presidential candidate actually, ambassador actually the, uh, it's his dad okay his dad was the uh, founder of huntsman chemical yeah um and then john huntsman jr went on to run for president so the uh where i was just here in at deer valley they the huntsman property up there mm -hmm. and supposedly they're finally gonna sell it i think it's was yeah. 80 acres or something right there in the mm -hmm. prime real estate and they're gonna put uh 
couple lots out. And... Deer Valley is fantastic. I mean, as far as getting a place, if you're if you're going for a second home and you want a place to stay near Park City, then Deer Valley is fantastic. Yeah, and if you got a and if you, extra million <laughs> you to throw around, extra money. Um, so let's get into how'd you go from uh, growing up in Utah, Utah State, to getting into the uh, hedge fund world. Um, I can jump back a little bit yeah. uh, to give some some way back history on myself. Uh, growing up in uh, in middle school and high school, I was actually a math nerd the entire time. I, I tried to be a closet math nerd, but I participated in mathematics competitions nationally and and things of that sort. We joke about it because uh, my parents actually used to tell me, you know, don't tell anybody you're in in math competitions because it's really not cool and you won't you won't be with the cool kids. And we we joke about how times have changed because my impression now is that nerdy things and smart things are cool and I might have fit in better if I was born a couple decades later, but... A hundred percent, yeah. Today, you're the right, you got the Zuckerbergs and the... Yeah, it's, it's kind Google of a cool thing. And, yeah. yeah, to be, you know, glee and, and math and all that kind of stuff is cool now, and it kind of, it definitely kind of wasn't when I was growing up. But. I was myself on a math team in high school, uh, Mu Alpha Theta team, nice. M-A-T-H. Nice. Clever. Uh, but clever. it was a four-man team, and I was <clears throat> easily the fourth best. <laughs> the best guy on there got a perfect score on his math SAT, so yeah. we would just let him run with it. I was a football player, and I'd, my job was kind of to intimidate the other teams. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. We had we had one outstanding person, too. We, he ended up being a uh, stats professor at uh, at a university out east. So that, uh, And what... Uh, so you're doing these math competitions and you had an aptitude for it and yeah and I, I I didn't really know at the time I didn't know what quant finance was but uh, I knew that I I was into math and and you know mathematical modeling and I started to have interest in the financial markets you know late in my teen years and this just kind of happened to coincide with if you remember the mid 90s suddenly we had groups like uh, you know, interactive brokers and and um, Scott Trade and others were offering direct trading online platforms, and so I suddenly had access to the fi financial markets, and I kind of parlayed my interest in mathematics into um, what I would later learn was called quant finance, and uh, specifically I entered into the options world very quickly and started doing more sophisticated mathematical modeling via derivatives. And so was it a uh Stocks at first, individual stock. Yeah, names. individual equities and you know spiders index things like yeah, that. Yeah, I feel like that's such a natural transgression for people. Not transgression. Uh, transition. Transition. Thank mm -hmm. you. Uh, for people of oh, I'm trading stocks. I understand it. Like oh, this risk doesn't seem to work out. Oh, let me learn about options. Oh, yeah. let me learn about futures next. And you just go down the derivative chain to get sure. to the most efficient vehicle. Yeah, and and specifically with with equities, <laughs> if if you're getting into equities in a more sophisticated sense you know there's there's always those who do a good job of tape reading and things like that that can that can trade you know e-mini contracts or something do they still have tapes yeah, yeah. yeah if you <laughs> want to call it reading the tape anymore yeah. right reading the digital tape but uh the problem is if you want to get into sophisticated mathematical modeling it usually takes uh, larger amounts of capital and so one of the one of the things is when you're when you're a, a teenage boy and looking to get into the the financial markets, you're saying where can I do sophisticated modeling without being too capital intensive? And options really is that place. Yeah. And so I got into options and I found out and you know being in Utah, I'm not surrounded by Wall Street, right? So uh, I didn't have a lot of 
access to mentors locally. I spent so much time. It's unfathomable how much time I spent on, uh, you know, public forums and quant forums and trading groups. And, and this is like pre-Twitter. Yeah, this pre-Twitter, you know, pre-social media in general. But we did have, you know, online forums and, so you and like boards. like AOL chat group Yeah, chat, chat rooms. Um, and I, I found out in the public forum space that I was putting on far more complex and sophisticated positions in options than most were. You know, there was, there was always your, you know, covered call guys and your vertical spread traders and things like that and your premium sellers. But I was doing multi-leg, you know, hedged positions and realizing that as I traded more and more, I was hedging out Delta. I was hedging out Theta. I was hedging out just about everything except for finding Alpha in Vega. And Vega, for those not familiar, the volatility component of options. And what I eventually did was located on those public forums a group of about five or six other volatility-focused traders. And we kind of split off and formed our own private group online that would focus in on volatility arbitrage and, and forecasting vol. And where were these uh, guys or girls or whatever across the world? Across the, across the nation mostly. Uh, there was, you know... A professor out of Georgetown was one of them, and a couple guys from some prop groups in Chicago, and then a couple just individuals like me that were, you know, mathematically minded traders. And so you're doing this all with your own money? Yeah, and and you know, I didn't come from money, so I I was entrepreneurial from a young age. So I had scraped together, you know, at what would be considered not a lot of money by trading standards, but a lot to a you know to a young yeah you know, college student. Okay, so you're like. 19 years old doing this? Yeah, 19 year old, old up through, you know, 2021, um, getting into the early 2000s now of, of, you know, being able to approach the markets in a completely different mindset now that the online world had kind of taken over and, and really there were no limits on what you could do. You didn't have to, you didn't have to go to a prop group. You didn't have to go to, you know, an investment bank or, or something to learn how to trade. Do you ever uh, wish you had gone to one of those? Like you think as much as you learned, maybe you would have learned even a little more or learned it faster or something? There's a little bit of a give and take. I mean, having a mentor would have been nice as long as they're of the proper caliber. Yeah. Um, but when I talk to people now, usually my approach to the markets and my, my mindset is so much more unique and different that yeah, I wonder if I almost would have gotten you know pushed in a in kind of the wrong direction for what right, I was it trying to do. shaped you into groupthink. Yeah, groupthink and, and specifically equity you know, thing. equity, buy, sell trading and things like that, that I wouldn't have want, wanted to get into. And so, uh, did you ha then go get a real job or you just went straight from that young trading into running your own firm? No, I always wanted to trade. I always wanted to run my own firm. I wanted to specifically, what I had in my mind was I was going to start my own hedge fund. Um, not knowing the direction I wanted it to go at the time. And how, how did you even know hedge fund? Uh, like, wait, I, did you have some idols or some heroes that you wanted to emulate or just... Um, I mean, Rentech, Jim Simons has always been kind of like the gold standard for me yeah. as far as where do I want to be because he's kind of, you know... The, but even back then, he was pretty unknown. He was pretty unknown, but by the time I was in college, I, I knew who he was, yeah. you know. he's He's been very successful at staying under the radar for considering how successful he's been, but... Extremely so. Even did you read his, the book that just came out? The uh, uh, not the most recent one. No, I'm starting it soon. But uh, everyone says like there, there's really nothing in there. Like the yeah. guy couldn't get much access, and he's yeah. kind of talking around the whole story. But I've seen the articles that kind of 
tease about it a little bit, but I mean, it's set, it's so well guarded. I've done enough research on my own to know, you know, with the, with the various public information that's come out to see how, how does it compare to other things out there? But to answer your question, I did, uh, I did end up working for a Fortune 500 company, a Fortune 100 company, actually, for a while in an R&D capacity. But uh, who was that? DuPont. If oh, you chemical. Know. Yeah, yeah, DuPont company. So I did that for a while. Um, and, I actually uh, used to, uh, I don't know if I should tell the story, but I was <laughs> doing uh, yard work as a summer job in Vero Beach, Florida. And one of our accounts was the uh, some DuPont air. Mm-hmm. huge property ton yeah. it would take us like four hours to mow the grass and do all this stuff and the old DuPont lady would hide coke cans like out on the grounds and if you didn't find it she'd fire you oh man and but there was a small town there are only like four groups that would so she'd just cycle through the four groups because she'd keep okay oh you didn't find that you're fired so who knows god she rest in peace she's yeah. probably <laughs> long gone by now yeah So where, how did the Certeza name come about? I always want to say Certeza. Certeza. A lot of people say Certeza, actually. But it's Certeza. Yeah, for those familiar with Spanish, Portuguese, um, you know, Latin base in general, Certeza is mostly how they say it, depending on Italy says it a little bit different. But um, it, the concept there is the word is certainty. Um, and obviously from the, from the root there, the Latin root, cert. But really it's, it's more of an, ironical usage for us because we're we're statistical in nature and the one thing if you ever talk to a statistician the one thing you realize is that they will never state anything with certainty right. because there's no such thing as statistical certainty right um and so what it is is this ironical thing that we have where it's the carrot dangling out in front of us this this concept can can we get closer and closer to the idea of statistical certainty um knowing that we're never going to be able to say we know for certain that this trade or this concept is going to be right the law was saying like well i'm pretty certain about that yeah, but 99.9 percent you know i was here though but there's a greater than zero percent chance that there's a different outcome sure cover themselves uh so you dupont left dupont and started certeza i actually started it concurrently um and really what had happened was uh, the evolution of that that vol that kind of academic vol group that I was in, uh, what I noticed was we were taking the same approach to vol. And for those who, who know, modeling volatility is one of the more difficult concepts in mathematically, modeling variance and volatility. And, and it stands to reason. It's not too difficult in the stock world to say, I, I have some type of sense of what stock movement's going to be in the short term or in the intermediate term with fundamental basis and everything. But but to say then another derivative of that and to take it and say, I, I not only want to know what the direction of the stock market's going to be, but I also want to know what the volatility or the, or the variance of that movement's going to be is, is much more difficult. And in a certain time frame. Yeah, and within the time frame, you know, we always talk about volatility is synthetic time and vice versa. So, you know, volatility is, has a direct relationship with time passing. So I would say it's, a, it's 3D chess on a ocean with sharks with lasers on their heads. <laughs> yes, yes. That's a good, that's an apt description, <laughs> yeah. I would say. So what it ended up, ended up happening was um, the landscape really changed for me in 2004 because the CBOE announced that, you know, VIX futures were coming online. And 
up until then, every vol trader out there was using options because that's where volatility trading was. And, and you couldn't trade. The VIX was just an index. Yeah, the VIX was an index, and the VIX still isn't tradable, but the derivatives are. And uh, that vol group that I was participating in, that we were some of the very first to ever trade. We traded VIX from inception. And so it was a, it was a weird world then because there wasn't consistent listing of VIX contracts and there would may, there might be five to 20 contracts per day traded, you know, the, wow. the daily volume was nothing. And it re really was myself and these other traders trading against each other for bragging rights and huh. see, see who could kind of guess model volatility better at the time, because there was no mathematical foundation for it. They were, they were, they're completely new. And, and, or you could have just done the game theory approach and know what those other four yeah, guys are doing. Yeah, it really was maybe more of a, maybe more of a game theory mindset. But uh, in two, by the end of 2006, really, um, more, more institutions had come into the market for VIX futures and the CBOE had introduced the options as well. And it wasn't that I was really interested in the options because I had really kind of gravitated away from the options world in favor of more efficient execution in futures. But what really happened was that the options in VIX attracted a lot more attention and the daily volumes in the VIX futures became much higher and, and deeper. And by about the end of 2006, we had an actual consistent volatility curve, the term structure that we always refer to in VIX. Yeah. And that obviously then changed the world for me because I could now model VIX mathematically. And then did, so did you have your family then said, okay, I'm going to take this leap. I'm going to quit my day job. And I did it concurrently for a while because this is still 2006 and I, I maintained a professional contract. The nice thing was that it wasn't taking up crazy amounts of my time. I was really more of a research and development capacity where I would do projects and, and inventions and things like that for yeah. them. And so I was able to do both. Did um, you invent anything cool? I actually invented a couple things kind of cool, a couple things that people actually use use now. Um, You're not allowed to tell me. That's kill me. <laughs> I can tell you. My name's on a few patents out there if somebody would wanted nice. to search for them. So um, I invented. Mostly what I was working in was uh, brand protection and authentication, so ways to prevent counterfeiters from being able to beat products. Um, like so to redo an, a chemical? Uh, so, for example, in the world of... Um, everything from Nike shoes to um, cell phone batteries, everything you can think of really. Um, Counterfeiting is a problem, right? And, and I specialized in developing new technologies that would prevent counterfeiters from being able to beat them. So ways to tell you as a consumer that the product is real. Cool. Right. Um, so then Certeza's launched, you, you quit. Yeah. So Certeza is launched. I'd finished my models. And what had really happened was, interestingly enough, that that group of all traders I was working with, I found them all leaning toward what we now call the, the short vol trade or the, the premium selling trade, the risk premium trade. And I found myself on the other side of that trade over and over and over again. And the reason for that is I didn't, I didn't ever debate them on the fact that it was a positive expectancy trade because it was. And it still is, I believe, for the most part. The problem was the tail events, and yeah. and the tail events for VIX are absolutely insane. You know, VIX. Most people think that VIX topped out at uh, you know eighty nine in in the two thousand eight two thousand nine crash. Um, actually, those for those of us who have back calculated it further back than nineteen ninety, uh, 
in the 1987 crash, it went to at least 150. Wow. And so if you're considering being a short vol trader, knowing that 150 also is not the ceiling, it could go to 200, 250. There's not really a ceiling for it. And so I always looked at that and said, you know, I would talk to, to my to my colleagues there. I call them colleagues, I guess. I would talk to them and say, and they would always have the same response. Well, when it starts to happen, we'll get out of the way. Yeah, yeah. And my response was, so you feel like you can buy insurance on a burning house. Right. And, and what happens when it happens on a Sunday yeah. night? Yeah. And the gaps. I mean, we all remember, for example, the, the August 2015 move where, you know, we closed the market on Friday. VIX was in low 20s, you know, um, and it opened, I believe the first print was 53. And gaps like that don't happen in other instruments. Right. And we always joke, you know, everyone talks about the, the, February, the February 2018 VIX meltdown. And we always, we always kind of... VIX-mageddon. Yeah, we they call it, it VIX-mageddon. We, they say, you know, nobody, nobody really saw that coming. I'm saying, well, a lot of us saw it coming. It should have happened in August of 2015. Yeah. VIX went, from tw- VIX went from low 20s to 53 on the opening print. The only thing different was that it kind of calmed down by the end of the day. And so it was supposed to have happened then. And remind what hap- what was the catalyst in that? August that was 19th? a China economic meltdown. Oh yeah. So the the more recent one, you know, it was the most recent one until the one that we're kind of currently in. So, but anyway, the 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 point there was that I found myself in the long ball trade more often than not, and so I went about trying to figure out how to build a model that could. Um, kind of take advantage of both. Could I could I take advantage of the positive expectancy of the short ball trade, but find a way to not be exposed to the to the tail and and be long ball biased overall? That was always the question. And I'd finished my model by about mid 2010 and went live with it in July of 2010, and that was the kind of the genesis of Certeza. And I kind of have an issue with that. The short vol is a positive expectancy trade. It's like over a long enough timeline. Yes, over the over over the entirety of history. Yeah, right. Selling vol is what what we all kind of know in the markets is that is that humans are willing to pay an excessively high premium for for insurance, yeah. and that's what the that's what the short vol or the risk premium trade is. It carries a premium, and over time, it's not unlike the insurance industry in that, you know, the same thing happens with insurance companies and law of large numbers says that is it's a positive expectancy trade. Except instead of millions of patients. Yeah. And you're not gonna have all of them get sick at the same time except for coronavirus that we're in right now. But sure. right, it's like you have one patient that could get deathly ill tomorrow. Yes. And so insurance companies work on the concept of expectancy the same way we do. And the problem with the markets really is that there, there's a little bit of a false sense of security in this concept of traditional diversification. And so we all think that there's more diversification in the market than there actually is until we see things line up. And the first real evidence of that was the 2008 you know, yeah. meltdown when everything correlated suddenly. So, And just backing up, and we'll get more into the strategy in a minute, but what happened to those uh, five peers from the group? Are they still around? You still talk to them? Uh, um, I don't talk to them anymore because I kind of went a separate way. Really with the, with the advent of Certeza, it became a situation where I was no longer willing to share modeling freely with yeah. them. And a couple, the, the most successful one of them also wasn't. And we talked a little bit and said, you know, we're, not, we're actually at a point now where we're not really willing to openly share with each other 
And so this really isn't going to do us a whole lot of good anymore. And so we kind of went our own ways. I do remember I, I'd caught up with one of them. He was, he was one of the uh, individuals, and I remember he, uh, he was out of Chicago. He had built a, a quite small account, a less than $100,000 account into $10 million over the course of, you know, from 2006 up to, up to 2010, which is wildly successful for an independent trader. And, and uh, through the 07, 08? Yeah, through the and you have to realize that in for VIX, 07 and 08, and, and 09 for that matter, was very, very profitable. Yeah. There was so much inefficiency in the market that it was crazy for those of us who knew the market. Um, but if you remember the flash crash of May 2010, um, they were all on the short ball trade during that crash. And I remember talking oh. to that specific individual, and he said, I'll never forget it. He said, my vision just went blurry because his 10 million account had turned into 4 million in 10 minutes. Ouch. And 100K to 10 million to four. Yeah, and those types of things really drive it home when you're already someone who says, I prefer the long ball bias trade. I just need to figure out how to make it positive expectancy. The flip side to that would be turn 100K into 4 million. Yes, <laughs> right. yeah, be on the other side of that. The problem with the crisis alpha trade really is that um, being a negative expectancy trade over time, you have to figure out how to overcome that. and you'll see these crisis alpha funds that will just bleed for you know, four years at a time. And, then, and that's not the biggest problem because if that was the only problem, then it would be manageable by saying, I'm serving my function if VIX goes from 18 to 70 and I perform the hedge function, then I've done my job, yeah. right? But the problem is that VIX is very much lightning in a bottle at that point. And if, if it's printing 45, is that where you capture profits? Yeah, or where, is it going to go to 70? And if you, you took it out? at 45, you're not performing your function. Most often what happens is VIX will go to 50 and then immediately back down to 20 in a blink. And so how do you, how do you really capture that? And that's been the biggest problem yeah, for crisis. How do you monetize alpha. it? Okay, you're listening to The Derivative, and we're back with Brett Nelson of Certeza, not Certeza, Certeza Asset Management, getting ready to dive into the strategy a little bit more. So, Brett, give me the elevator pitch on what Certeza does, and we're on the first floor. We're going up to 10, so go. Sure. First statement would be that we don't trade any options, pure volatility futures. We arbitrage the VIX curve. We do not arbitrage the difference between implied and realized vol like most do. Um, the best description is that we figured out an optimal way to capture the virtues of what most people would call the roll yield trade in VIX in that, you know, what would otherwise be considered a short vol trade, but in a way that doesn't leave us exposed to the vol spikes because we've been able to use VIX convexity to not only hedge itself, but to become the return driver in the VIX spike events. So we end up collecting that roll yield that everybody wants so much in VIX under normal conditions, but being long ball biased day in and day out. So we catch the spike as well. So not necessarily long ball. I think a lot of VIX managers that we talk to, they're like, okay, I'm a long ball play and I'm limiting the bleed, or I'm a short ball guy that's either ignorant of the spikes or has a plan of, well, I'll get out when it comes. So you're sort of opportunistically moving back and forth between those two? Yes, um, but more specifically, we found uh, we found that there are structural inefficiencies within VIX itself as an instrument that allow us to capture that roll yield without having to choose: do we want to be short or long ball? 
VIX has certain virtues that don't exist anywhere else in the, in the global marketplace. And we can exploit those to say we can actually be long vol biased almost all the time, if, if not all the time, then almost 90% of the time. And, and even being long vol biased, we can still capture that roll yield. So we're not just minimizing the bleed. We're actually overcoming it, producing you know, absolute return during those Which is That's hard for people to have both those thoughts in their head, right? Of like, I'm, it, it really it is. It seems hard. impossible that, okay, I'm doing both of these counter things yes. and at if, the same time. Yeah. And if it wasn't for the unique characteristics of VIX, I don't think it would be possible. Can you touch on those unique characteristics a little bit without giving away the secret sauce? Sure. There's general ones that everyone knows. For example... Um, VIX is a statistician's dream, is what I would say, for someone like me. Um, it is non-trending, where nearly all other assets trend over time. Statisticians don't like that. We have to actually perform little tricky maneuvers to get rid of the trending nature of an asset, right? So VIX is non-trending. Being non-trending, it's also the most highly mean-reverting instrument in the world. So let, let's go back to non-trending. I think we did an event at the CBOE once, and you were mm -hmm. getting in on this like you're saying it's mathematically impossible for it to trend it can't trend over time if it if it trended it trends in more of a flat manner it's not to say that it doesn't have um what we call volatility clustering because it certainly does on the market does in general but do you but mean it won't can't trend higher or it doesn't trend, trend higher either, or lower over long periods of time um for example the equity markets they have an obvious trend they trend with productivity increase and inflation and every other, you know, oil, um, corn, wheat, cattle, they all do that. But VIX doesn't because VIX is a mathematical formula and variance over time does not trend indefinitely. It can't mathematically. And if it can't trend, I don't have to manipulate it mathematically. And the other thing is that if it's not trending, it's also reverting by definition. And so when you talk to people who are in the equity markets and they say we trade some type of mean reversion strategy, what they're trying to do is capture a reversion back to a trending mm -hmm. mean line, right? And we all know that, you know, specifically for individual equities, you know, they can go bankrupt, they can go to zero. So a trend isn't really a, a great assumption. And even in the broader indexes, the, the trend is very loose. Um, so a mean reversion to that trend is going to be loose. But for VIX, it's not very loose. VIX... If, it, if VIX goes to 90, there's a, a virtual certainty that within a very short period of time, it's going to be back below 50, below 40, and you know, for that matter, maybe below 20. And there's math in there too, right? Because if a VIX at 90 is telling what, that there's 90% annualized volatility over the next 30 days? Yeah, and consider what that means. In the bottom of the market of 2009, VIX is printing 89.5, whatever that was there. Consider... Consider what a plus or minus 90% move in the market actually means. Um, does that mean, for example, that certain market participants had it in their head that a that an S&P at 100 points was a possibility? Right, and it's you it's know. saying the volatility is 90%, right? The variance. Well, so yeah, the variance, the the annualized volatility. You know, it's a forward it's a forward 30 day that's an annualized but basically it's just saying that this year there could be a plus or minus 90 percent move in s p which you know you're looking at and you're saying that's one standard deviation by the way not two yeah. or three that's one standard deviation so that's a crazy thought to think of how bad everyone 
thought it could get. And so on a weekly basis, not to put you on the spot if you can do that math quickly, <laughs> but on, what does that mean on a weekly basis that it was moved? Um, For sake of argument, we'll say like 20%. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about reciprocal roots there in order to annualize it. So, you know, you say if something if something had, for example, it's it's not linear. Let's say a normal VIX of 15, you know, that's an annualized number. That means a monthly vol of about three-ish or so. It's okay. like a reciprocal of the 12th root, for example. But so, yeah, and so in that 90, you're basically, people are saying the market's going to go bust. It's going yeah, to zero. Basically, it's saying that this month alone, we, you know, we could be seeing a 50% move, you know, yeah. a 40% move. So it's, it's very, very dramatic. And even this last week, you know, as, as VIX nearly hit 50 last Friday, a couple of days ago, um, VIX nearly hits 50. And to think about what that means in the market is actually a pretty staggering thought. That means that this month, the move, you know, could be 20% plus or minus in one standard deviation. And the, the danger of all that math, though, from the short ball side, right, is that the old line of the markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Absolutely. Yep. So, yeah, it makes no sense to be at 90, but it, like you said earlier, it could go to 150. Go to 150 and it has. And then you're, you're broke, you're bust. Yeah. So right, you can't just put a post out there of every time it goes above 30 or 40 or 50 to say, oh, this is, it's going to mean revert in a hurry. I'm going to go yeah. short. But the nice thing that that brings us to is the, one of the other virtues of VIX is that not only does it not trend and it mean reverts, but it's also single-tailed, which is very unique in the marketplace. Most, most things are, are two-tailed by definition. That's not to say that, it, that you know, a stock can go below zero because it can't. But most stocks, for example, are, you know, say they're at $50, $100, $200. In any normal single standard deviation scenario, one, two, three standard deviations, it's pretty well double-tailed and, and somewhat symmetrical, maybe log-normally distributed, but, but nonetheless somewhat symmetrical. And VIX doesn't have that characteristic in that it's very strange. It, the mean for VIX, or the, or the mode as we like to say, the mode for VIX is actually very, very close to the mathematical floor. So VIX can't really go below nine for any extended period of time mathematically. It just, you'd, you'd have to think about what that means. If VIX were to print five for an extended period of time, that means that the broader world of investors thinks that there's going to be, over the next year, there's going to be plus or minus 5% move in the markets. And how is that any type of predictable? Yeah, you know? it'd so almost be like if... All, all the companies got nationalized or something, and there was a yeah right. And they said, "Hey, by definition, by law, no company's stock yeah. can move more than zero point five percent." Sure, and if and if if VIX is if there's an actual assumption that realized volatility is going to be down in the single digit, the low single digits, you might as well just be in fixed income there because yeah. what what type of risk premium is associated with equities at that point? Right. Because it's everyone's crazy. in equities for the risk premium. It's like we've become muni bonds at that point. Yeah, really. So and so, when you're saying there's single tail, you're saying there's just the fat. Which one? Left? The fat. The fat right tail. The fat right there tail. There is no versus... left tail. So so VIX can go all the way up to 100, 200, whatever. Um, and the nice thing about that is, then you think in the context of our model. So we positioned ourselves so that we're not vulnerable to the right tail, but there is no left tail. 
So if you can position yourself so you're so you profit or are at least neutral on the right tail, and then you can gain the benefits of its mean reversion characteristics toward the left tail that doesn't exist, that's actually kind of a nice trade. I like that. And that's the whole concept behind most successful hedge funds, right? Of like I have an mm -hmm. asymmetrical yeah, I have risk an asymm reward. I've asymmetrical reward. Yeah. Uh, I just was thinking of Tesla, like stock in the past couple of months has had a hugely left and right tail. Yeah. Right? It jumped from whatever, 400 sure. to 975 and then back down to 620 yeah. or something. And how do you really build a model around something like that? That's always been my question because obviously to protect against a certain direction, most things actually don't have enough of a characteristic we call convexity. And if you don't have convexity and it's not controllable, then really it costs you too much to hedge your your absolute risk. So or, or even to speculate, right? Like I think the naive investor would say, oh well I can buy a straddle on Tesla and I know sure. it's gonna go huge one way or the other. But sure. there's a cost to that. But yeah, what most people don't realize about the options market, and you gotta realize that's my background. I extensively mathematically studied options for a long time. And what most people don't realize is that if you don't actually have some type of edge in options, the the options are priced in such a way that a straddle in either direction, whether it's a short straddle or a long, is statistically priced correctly. The assumption is it's sufficient. So it doesn't it's very strange to make this comment that, well, as long as it moves one direction or the other, what you're actually saying with a straddle is as long as it moves one direction or the other, greater to a greater magnitude than what the market is already predicting, because that's already priced in. That last part's what everyone leaves out, right? Yeah. Yeah, I will always say that. Then you get some people like, oh, well, we believe vol is cheap or vol is expensive. Like, well, isn't it? It is what it is. It's priced yeah. so as vol, it's priced. Yeah, vol is almost always slightly overpriced. And that's what that's why the short vol trade is statistically expected. Relative to what? Overpriced to Rel relative to realized. So they you know, the typical vol arb trade is um, is implied going to to maintain its overpricing relative to realized and it historically does have that until events like the current one with a with a surprise virus epi viral epidemic or something like that but pandemic pandemic yeah which the the WHO is refusing to call a pandemic um, the the concept there is you have to have some type of edge and edges is, is is statistical. It's not. It's not an abstract, nebulous concept. It's not like, oh, my edge is my ability to outthink other people. No, right. edge is a mathematical number. A trader should know what, what it is by number. Is it ten percent? Is it five percent? Is it a hundred percent? Right, which is edge alpha. is expectancy. Yeah, yeah, alpha and expectancy. So, so that's the thing is, if you don't have a mathematical edge in options, then it's already priced in. But that seems counter not to belabor the point too much counter to the concept of it's overpriced if it's already priced in it can't be overpriced but you're just saying the, the there's a recognition that humans are willing to overpay for insurance and so that's that's what's understood about at least at the money or near to the money options is that um, people are overpaying the premium on options generally and so in a perfect world if they weren't overpaying for that the put prices would be much lower or not much lower yeah, but slightly a, lower in to match up with what the actual realized volatility over the next 30 days year whatever yes turns and, out to be and it's obvious in you know the the put volatility smile the the skew that everyone always talks about um, 
these these things are pretty well known. And so to to get in there and say, okay, I somehow have an edge in predicting, you know, implied volatility behavior within options or something like that, you better be certain that you do. Yeah. Otherwise, right. not enough to say that people overpay for insurance is my yeah. edge. Yeah, and so the the option selling market out there is huge, that and and it was huge going into the the VIX as you call it VIX Mageddon going into February 2018. It's a massive market because everyone, you know, in, intuitively knows that people overpay for that. But you have to realize what kind of risk you take on, what event risk you take on to be on the side that takes advantage of that. Let's talk a little bit. So you mentioned term structure, and that's a big part of your model. So just give us the quick definition of what the term structure is and how you guys view it. Yeah, it's interesting that we call it a term structure in VIX. Um, some might actually say that VIX is the only futures product out there that doesn't have a true term structure, but that's kind of the the the, Why? the nomenclature used in the market. But a term Why is structure. That? It's not. Well, I can describe it a little bit, but to establish what a term structure is first, okay. um, a, a curve that you would see in any any type of commodity, whether it's you know a physical commodity like cattle, oil, for example, or a financial futures contract, you know we have the the bond futures and things like that. Um, the term structure is essentially month to month. You've got a listing of contracts. Say we're in we're in February right now or March now, but the front month contract would be March, and then you know April, May, June. And it forms a curve because all of them obviously are not going to be the same price. And in most commodities, they have a condition called normal backwardation, which basically means that the nearer months are priced at a higher premium than the further months. So it's a downsloping curve with, with some type of concavity. Um, in VIX, it's actually opposite that. We have a, a natural contango, which means that the near months are typically cheaper and they get more expensive as you go back. That makes a lot of sense because in VIX, um, the further back months are pricing in a greater uncertainty, and uncertainty means you know a greater potential for higher prices in the future. So, so the further back contracts are going to be, you know, retaining some type of a premium relative to the more certain near-term contracts. Right. And you're, the whole concept being, I have a better of idea of what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. Versus next week. Versus next month. Versus next year. Like predicting the weather. You know, I yeah. can predict the weather really well tomorrow. Somewhat next week. But my concept of what's going to happen on a day-to-day -day basis in the weather three, four, or five months from now, it's pretty much all the same. So you'll see it kind of flatten out toward the back end of the curve because uncertainty in the markets is the same way. They're, they're kind of similar once you get back there that far. Um, the reason I say it doesn't actually have a true term structure is that it's, it comes back to this concept of what makes VIX unique in the marketplace. One of the other characteristics, we call it a virtue, some people might call it an annoyance, but... Um, VIX actually doesn't have a physical. It's the only thing that doesn't. All other commodities and financial products, for example, have a physical. You can buy corn. You can buy cattle. You can buy, buy fuel products like oil or gasoline. And because you can buy the physical or you can somehow replicate the synthetic physical, as soon as you can do that, you can arbitrage it. And so if a futures contract, you know, given you know, cost of carry and things like that and the, the risk-free rate of you know, borrowing, once you can factor those things in, you can actually come up and say, okay, as long as I know the physical price, I can arbitrage. And if the futures contract wanders off of fair value by very far, then the market is very good at pushing it back to fair value. VIX is unique in that there is no physical. 
And more importantly, you can't replicate the synthetic physical. So there is no cost-effective way to go out there and buy a representative number of all of the different options used to construct what the mm. fixed number is. It would just it would it would eliminate your edge in trying to do that simply by trying to buy that many contracts. Although, and we can get into this in a bit. Weren't there some uh, rumors and things that people were doing just that and kind of gaming the uh, VIX close by jumping so, into the right strikes and pushing the VIX calculation? So that's the whole thing is because it doesn't have a phys physical, you can, uh, a, a large a large order flow could technically push the direction of it. But what ends, because what ends up happening and in this manipulation you talk about that's been mentioned is that without a physical, the front month contract actually doesn't have something to pin to. So in a normal market, you would say the, the front month contract has to equal the, the cash price or the spot price at expiration. But with VIX, it has something, you know, a weird thing called the special opening quotation, which basically is a number that, that ends up settling out as being what's proposed as being the VIX price at settlement. But no one knows what, that, what that's actually going to be. Yeah. And, and specifically the VIX spot number stops printing prior to the expiration. And so what ends up happening is, let's say that VIX, the last printed price was 12 going into the expiration. And an hour later, you find out that the special opening quotation was what, 13 or 11.25. Is that even somewhat close enough to actually arbitrage? Because mm -hmm. you're, you're quite a ways off. And so there had been some speculation of, of manipulation on that to say that you can actually try and push the direction of that off so that that SOQ that we call it is much further off of what the last spot print was. And to do that, you'd be buying, what is it? It's on the uh, it's, 100 so, options? Yeah, the, the, 100 the spot VIX takes in a, a wide cross-section of near-the-money options prices. And, and then the special opening quotation then has to, the, the reason they call it the special opening quotation is it considers the opening price. Um, from the following day for those options. And so it's really, it would, it's basically come down. A lot of people have tried to kind of create something that sort of mimics the behavior of what a, a physical replication would be. But the point there is that because you can't replicate the synthetic, there is no actual fair value for a VIX contract. So what we've done is we've gone through and said, we know really well what a probabilistic range of possible fair values might be and where within that range the current value sits. And, and so it, you make me think of like this oil trade back in the day, of, right? If these huge Glencores and big commodity firms, if they own the futures, they've got a tanker with oil, and if it's off the fair value, they just keep it in the tanker, mm -hmm. right? Or if it's like, oh, we can keep it in the tanker for a dollar a barrel, but the curve is in backwardation. It's cheaper for me. You know, there's trades all around that physical, like you're saying, that don't exist in the VIX because... There's no physical. Right. I have no other side of the trade. Yep. Interesting. Um, and so, quickly, would your models work at all on something other than the VIX, or they're VIX-specific? They were built for VIX. We have used them in a, in a different program across, across 20 different commodity markets, and they work quite well there. Um, those other markets admittedly don't have the virtues that VIX has. So uh, one of our and other they programs... they do have term structure, but it's... They do have term yeah. structure. Um, but at its core, our model is a statistical model. So any time that there's a statistical inefficiency within a term structure, we can find it and we can exploit it. Um, they're just greater inefficiencies and more commonly occurring in VIX than any other market. 
And so to boil it all down, the strategy is essentially saying the, the term structure per our model, sh the curve per our model should be X. The fair value, it, or in, as a st statistician, you're saying it should be. It's got a 89% probability mm -hmm. that this is what it should be. Yeah, picture in your mind if we said this specific contract has a possible range of values from X to Y, right? And, and right, is right it, now, just really, is that like so specific of eleven seventy-five to eleven eighty-two in the VIX? Yeah. Or something so like if that? you say, if you say the range is a three standard deviation range, right? So three sigma range plus or minus, and we're saying it is, you know, say to your point, eleven seventy-five up to thirteen twenty-five. And the current price is, let's say, twelve. Okay, where does that put us in relation to where the the median or the mode value for that? Got it. It's, yeah. it's usually a mode value, but um, what ends up happening is that that range is not symmetrical in distribution, and so we can look in there and say because it's so far out on its extremes of where it probabilistically should be, we know that it has a high tendency to revert toward its. Probabilistic. Um, probabilistic fair value. P probabilistic mode. Yeah. So, and, and so we look at that and we say, okay, we can exploit that by taking a position directionally in that one contract. But the problem is a shift in the curve could completely overwhelm that inefficiency. So we almost always, virtually always, go through and find a nearby contract that we can anchor it to because we want to ensure that a curve shift in and of itself is not going to overwhelm our inefficiency. We just want the relative value shift of, of that. that contract. And so that would look like I'm, you said we're in the March. I've identified the inefficiency in the March. It's a buy for us. Yes. I'm if I want to buy March and then I'm going to sell April against okay. it to as anchor it as an, more of an anchor than anything we want. We want to eliminate curve behavior, overall curve behavior or market behavior directionally, and we want to exploit the inefficiency caused in that one contract relative to the all, all the others. Which comes back to your options experience of like, I'm trying to hedge out all that delta and everything yeah. and just be looking at the vega. Really, really, that's that's what it is. And, and what you realize in VIX is that, um, to mention another, kind of another uniqueness of VIX is that I've followed a lot of markets in my career and Near, with near certainty, you can count on the fact that when more and more institutional capital flows into an instrument, it becomes increasingly efficient, right? Harder to extract alpha. VIX doesn't have that characteristic so far. As institutional capital flows into it, it becomes either equivalently inefficient or more inefficient over time. Really? And to get into that a little, the, uh, and we're talking all these exchange-traded products? Uh, and exchange traded products certainly help with that um, because, guess that's more because they're blind, they're product. indiscriminate. Um, but I'm talking about literally the capital flows caused by the largest equity funds out there, the, the really big long equity funds. and But that are outright playing in the VIX space or just... They can be outright playing in the VIX space or they can just be employing models like put buying, put protection. Okay, that are driving VIX. Which drives mm -hmm. VIX, yeah. So what ends up happening is that... Um, as, as institutional capital flows in, it, it causes the individual contracts to, to kind of move throughout this range, this probabilistic range that we talked about. And the more they move throughout that range, the more opportunity there is for someone like us to come in and exploit the inefficiency just for that contract. So we don't really have to take a view on the direction of VIX or something like that. We can take a view on 
the relative value of that contract relative to the rest of the curve. And so would you warn friends and family away from those VIX products? <laughs> um, I would warn most people away from VIX ETFs. I think that they serve very little purpose for the, uh, for the average investor. Right, they're they serve, good if you want to bet on the VIX going up tomorrow. Sure. They're, they're, as a, most of them are, are long VIX products, right? Long short-term VIX or medium-term VIX. And they're very indiscriminate, so they don't exploit the inefficiency in the curve. They just roll, and they have negative roll yield over time, certainly. And if I, if I stated previously in this interview that, that the short vol trade is a positive expectancy trade, the long VIX CTF is then going to be negative, negative expectancy by definition. Yeah, and if you look at a chart of some of those, they're down 99% sure. all time. Yeah. And that's, that's going to be the case. Now, do they have some utility for the institution that has a specific tactical reason to use them? I would say yes. But unfortunately, most of what's been happening is that people have been piling, using them as a vehicle to pile more and more into the short vol trade. Yeah. And that kind of can end up becoming a tail wags the dog scenario. You think that's partly what happened that Feb of 18? Yeah, and unfortunately, the short vol trade is back and bigger than ever since then. Is it so larger? It's I larger. Seen the stats. Yeah, it's larger yeah. than it used to be. Fortunately enough, some of the blown out ETFs, um, first of all, the ones that were really vulnerable did blow out and they're, and they're gone now. And the ones that stuck around actually delevered by half. And yeah, so, the Svixi, SVXY. Yeah. yeah, so the, the likelihood of a liquidation event happening again is incredibly low, if not non-existent. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that the blind short VIX trade isn't, you know, creating inefficiency in the market. It certainly is. Right. So you're welcome in it. It's like, hey, these yeah. are the suckers that we're taking advantage of. Yeah. And in fact, the uh, that blind short VIX trade um, caused unnatural distortion in the market leading up to this most recent crash. So do you think a lot of those guys got blown out last week? I, 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 I'm certain that they got hurt. Yeah. Whether they got blown out, we'll see. But they, they definitely got hurt and, and it might not be done yet. Let's change gears for a second, and you've got all your proprietary algorithms. It's a big part of what you do. What's the uh, give us some insight into how those are developed and tested, and, and whatnot? Yeah, I'm the primary driver of the research. Um, in fact, we've kind of bulked up our our firm during the past um, several months to uh, bring on more operational staff to to make sure that myself and and one of our other um, research slash uh, programming uh, guys focus completely on research and ensuring that the model is is optimally finding inefficiency within the VIX curve. The recognition of VIX is that it's still a young market in comparison to everything else. So when, when you consider as a statistician, the more data, the better, right? And I would love it if VIX futures went back, you know, 50 or 60 years, but they don't. Right. It's only back to 04. 04, and it's really only usable since about October of 2006 when the curve actually got really established. And so you consider what that means for us. Every month, every 12-month period is a dramatic increase in usable data. Right. So there's a constant effort to find, uh, to not only find opportunities within VIX, but also to take ideas that we had back in 2012 and 2013 
that only had a handful of data points to support them and say, as more occurrences pile up, is, is the, is repeatability being established or were they just, you know, a consequence of certain market conditions? And, or, but are the algorithms firing off the individual trades? Um, anything that's acceptable is we do a pretty extensive analysis. If, uh, it's, a uh, the best way to describe it would be most people know what a Monte Carlo simulation looks like. Mm-hmm. Now, um, jumping out of the mathematician's world of being able to say, I can do a Monte Carlo with some random walk scenario, some, some type of stochastics. If I can get out of that world and say, okay, now I'm in a more discrete data sampling world that's more applicable to VIX. VIX doesn't resemble any type of a normal distribution or a log normal distribution like all other, most other financial instruments do. So we discreetly sample and we realize that regime fits have to be a critical component. And so once we've done all that, we're in, or in order to, to accomplish that task, we have to do something that most people don't have to do. And we take in these large amounts of data and we literally lay up Monte Carlo simulations on top of each other and end up with hundreds of thousands of simulations that capture the universe of what could happen mm-hmm. in volatility. And then, and then we come in afterwards and say, okay, once you've recognized some type of um, idea or say a, a, an, exploit, an exploitative idea within the VIX curve, uh, in an efficiently priced contract, for example, there's thousands or tens of thousands of ways you could trade that. You know, do you take an outright large position? Do you scale in, scale out? What position, what points do you scale in, scale out? We run this through an optimizer that, that actually takes those thousands of different sub- methods and applies them to all of the hundreds of thousands of simulations that we've done. And so, and kind of gives us a statistical profile of what the best trade might look like. And kind of assigns a score. Signs it, yeah, you could call it a score. It's a it's a representation of um, we call it an expectancy profile. Okay. But but yeah, it's and a, then so if the expectancy profile is above such and such threshold, then the trade is triggered. The trade is the trade is good. Yeah, and we can and we can take that trade, and then that analysis is done every day to see whether the stats are deteriorating or improving for that trade. Um, and that process is always ongoing. So you're saying you want to be the, the wizard behind the curtain in your room coming up with models and let the rest yeah. of the guys run the shop? I would prefer to be the guy, yeah, the guy that's tucked away in a dark room and does research all day. That's my forte. <laughs> I like it. Uh, and so let's finish up on the strategy with just talking about risk a little bit. So the algos trigger that trade, says you've got this expectancy. Is the risk already built into that or do you overlay some risk on it? Yeah, the really nice thing, and I wish the the investment world would better embrace the concept of expectancy because they're they're all using it to some degree without even knowing it but when i when i go to events that are surrounded by you know uh, wall street professionals and i mention the word you know expectancy profile or, or expectancy ratios or multiples most people just don't know what i'm talking about yeah. and, I'm, and i'm saying this is a this is a key concept we've invented things like sharp ratios and sortino ratios and everything to try and try and create a simplified version of what an expectancy profile is. But when you understand what, it, what proper expectancy profiles look like, they include everything from probabilities of success or failure, as well as magnitudes of success, success and failure, everything that you would want to know about that trade, inter- including things like uh, value at risk metrics and value at risk on a daily or, or over time basis, 
all of that's included in expectancy profiles. I think people get worried or might be the wrong term, but if they say, okay, if it's a 99% expectancy that I should just be naked, short, the front month VIX or something. Yeah. Right? They worry, like, what if the model shoots that out? I get it that it has a super high expectancy per your models, but it's kind of an implicit, like, I don't want to trust your models completely, and so I want some other safety net or risk measure. Yeah, and that's part of what drove us to to uh, build the positions that we do, is we wanted to be able to say, okay, we can come in and we can say that that roll yield trade, for example, that, that everyone talks about, that that uh, contangle roll yield trade is positive expectancy by itself to a, you know, sometimes to a 99.9% .9 level of confidence. But to your point, I don't want to just pile into that. I don't want to just trust the model. So the best way to, that we've found to come in is to actually use VIX convexity to hedge itself, which is another unique thing about VIX is it's convex and it can hedge itself. So we can come in and say, I'm going to trust that model there but I'm not going to trust it to the point that I don't actually have a hedge that not only acts as a hedge, but also becomes the return driver in the big VIX event. Right, and just to put a bow on convexity, it's just it pays out at an increasing rate. Yeah, so the acceleration, your, your hedge accelerates as it moves. It doesn't just perform like a linear hedging function. The hedges, hedges are a double-edged sword. Usually they just become a wash. Yeah. Like you put them on and yeah, they, they stopped your downside, but they also dramatically limited your upside. When you've got convexity, it's a different story because you can say, for example, I've built this position that would be, for example, something of a short ball position, but I put so much convexity on the back end that if VIX were to spike a little bit, move up a little bit, I might be neutral to that. But with enough convexity, if VIX goes to 30, 40, 50, your hedge accelerates. And then you don't even care about your roll yield trade anymore. You're just saying this convexity has has produced a return driver, and that hedge by itself is now producing not only an absolute return but a significant absolute return. And it, putting it back in the insurance terminology, right? It's like if you have a life insurance policy, a normal non-convex, it just you die, it pays out a million. Yeah. This would be like something like the faster you're dying, the more it pays out. The more it pays out. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, and so you're looking at it, and it's, it's hard to even consider it a hedge anymore. It's a position in and of its own. Right. Well, it's like the ideal type of thing, something that can sure. not just hedge but pay out beyond yeah. the hedge. Yep. And so that's just at the back of everyone's mind is that VIX spike risk. But you're saying that's what we've covered. Yeah, and we, we, we're, we maintain a positioning that says we would prefer to assume that we're actually going to profit significantly from the VIX spike. But in the meantime... You know, it's the classic V bottom rally. You know, um, you're in a you're in a recent one. You're in May of this last year, and and the S and P sells sells off seven percent rapidly, right? And you say, great. So I, I have I have a a long vol bias, and I profited from that. And then suddenly the market puts in a V bottom rally of nine percent. So it gains back the full seven plus another couple more goes to all time highs. And VIX goes back down to low teens. And you're looking at that and saying, okay, if I properly constructed the position, like I'm talking about, I will have gained from the spike. And then when there's a V bottom rally and VIX goes all the way back down, I will either be neutral or gain on the on the collapse of VIX as well. And how do you handle <coughs> what we touched on earlier of the how do you monetize the spike? Because um, it's the whole right. If I want to get out yeah. at 45 and it could go to 90, it could go to... <clears throat> so for us, we have preset, uh, 
profit targets in our in our model that are just sitting there, um, you will not see us chasing VIX to a 50, 60, or 70 level. Okay. Um, You'll be we'll out. be out. We'll be out before that because what the acknowledgement is is given the mean reversion characteristic of VIX, if VIX is at 40 or 50 and you're long ball, you're in a dramatically negative expectancy trade at that point. Yeah. So yes, it could go to 90, and you're going to be kicking yourself if you bailed on it and it does go to 90. But 99.99% of the time, it's not going to go to 90. It's going to go to 12. And it's not what you're uh, offering investors, right? You're not saying, like, yeah. I'm going to produce 90% when the VIX spikes. You're, we're not you're giving saying, them, I'm giving you an absolute return. Yeah. We're not giving them crisis alpha, and we're not giving them convexity in the purest sense. We use convexity within our model to produce stable absolute returns over time. We'd like to finish off every pod going through some of your favorites, some of the uh, <coughs> back to the personal Great. side. So I think you already mentioned, but favorite Utah ski resort? Yeah, Brighton with good snow. With bad snow? You stay uh, home. With bad snow, I'll go to a local resort and get one or two runs in and then call it a day. <laughs> And I didn't even ask you. You like moved into telemarketing. Or you just no downhill. Seems no, like the longer people ski, the more they'll go down that route. Yeah, I I would if I could do telemarketing, it would be for one reason. And I've recently wanted to climb a couple mountains and then yeah, and do the ski up. ascent, skin up, and then come down telemark style, which would be nice. But I don't have the skills for that yet. Right, so. If you decide to do that, give me a call. We'll do skin up with you. Maybe I'll have to start working out. Um, favorite investing book. Uh, favorite author, Nassim Taleb, um, either The Black Swan or Fooled by Randomness. Okay, love it. Um, and But you had already kind of come to those conclusions before those books came out. Yeah, but I studied his books as some of the earliest that I studied. I'm, I tend to be someone who would rather put the personal research into something rather than taking someone's word for it in a book. But I went, And I don't know, does Taleb do VIX? Uh, options in general. So yeah, I know he does. As a derivation, just, you know, he, he has some great insight into the concept we were talking about earlier of if you don't have an edge in options, then it's already priced in, and he covers that extensively. So, uh, Favorite math theorem or proof or concept? Uh, stochastic differential equations, um, just in general. They're most applicable to what I do. And so, um, and I like to get past linear and into nonlinear equations. So um, when you realize what, you know, convexity and everything is, you have to realize you, realize you jump into nonlinear. Can you layman term that out for us real quick? Uh, most people, for example, if they did something like a regression analysis, which is basically just taking a whole bunch of what, what might be random or somewhat non-random plots, and then saying, I'm going to draw a line through that that most represents you know, the, the trend or the values. Right, I think I did that in right. college statistics of like yeah. major league baseball salaries versus the player's age or something. Sure, yeah, and yeah. so you do something like that and you get something of a, what they call a curve fit. Yeah. And it's really easy to do a linear regression, yeah. right? So most everybody does that and most of what you see is that. But a lot, most behaviors in, in nature and in markets are you know, more complex than just a simple linear relationship. For sure. So you get into something that's nonlinear, for example, we talk about convexity, something that actually accelerates or moves through time. Um, and for example, in VIX, 
there's a concept of what we call volatility clustering. You know, Robert Engel won a Nobel Prize for discovering volatility clustering, and yet most people don't utilize that in their statistical modeling. And we do extensively because it's very real in VIX. Volatility does cluster, and it kind of autoregress. It's autoregressive. So that, that just means like this past week of like there's none, there's none, and then it's a huge yeah, bout so, of volatility all of a sudden. So layman terms is, you know, calm produces calm and chaos produces chaos. So if you were to look back over the history of the markets, you'll notice these clustering periods where the, the markets are volatile for three years at a time and then they're very calm for three or four or five or six years at a time. And you have to utilize that. If you don't, if you're ignoring that in your analysis, how are you going to get a proper analytical perspective? There was some interesting research back in like 09 of the song, musical and art that people enjoyed. It became like more calm mm -hmm. when it was crazy in the markets. They preferred calm yeah. stuff. That's very and vice versa. Yeah, that's interesting. So you look at these relationships and say things are a lot more complex. And I like that the financial world is moving toward behavioral finance rather than, you know, we'd gone toward this quantitative uh, realm of thought before that basically said everything was efficient and everyone acts rationally. And now yeah, we're getting be completely away from that. a single bar number. Yeah, it's, it's so much more complex than that. So the concept of nonlinear equations comes in and, and uh, yeah, so. Uh, favorite Star Wars character? Oh, God. I mean, Yoda. But oh, nice. I'm, can you do a Yoda? I I <laughs> don't want to no. hurt anyone's feelings on that one. All right, no worries. That's it's a hard one. You got to practice it. Yeah. Uh, favorite? How many national parks you guys got here in Utah? A bunch. A bunch. What's the um, favorite one? I go every year down to the Lake Powell area, which is kind of part of the Grand Canyon. Um, but I would say that Bryce, if I had to pick one out, Bryce Bryce Canyon's phenomenal. I got it. I haven't had the kids out there yet, so we'll put it on the list. It's on. Uh, I I bought a book one time that was the top ten places that National Geographic crews would choose to go to, uh -huh. having been there and, and photographed it. Bryce Canyon was number three, I think. Got so. it. No, you'll have to share with me after we hang up here what the uh, the first two are. Yeah. Uh, that's it again. Uh, thanks, Brett, for joining us. Thanks for uh, the great Utah snow. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell the people where they can find you, website, LinkedIn, Twitter, any of that. Yeah, our, our website is um, certezafunds.com. So that's C-E-R-T-E-Z-A, funds being plural, F-U-N-D-S, dot com. Um, and they can kind of find at least basic info on us on there. And uh, I, I've tried to put out some material in the past i don't do a great job i tend to be stuck researching a lot so i know i'm, I'm pushing you to release more of that so hopefully yeah. we can convince them at dinner after the pod to release Maybe. more research they they start telling me i should tweet um because my insights are somewhat relevant on the vol on the vol environment so yeah you can save one person from just buying a fix right naively you'll have done your duty in the great. world. great all right thanks brett Thank you. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt 
and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalt.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.